Uh, Carl is next. Carl says, Lauren, this is a recording I made at my local homeware store. Management to the tills. A Europop classic is coming. It should instantly, says Carl, be recognised as Erasure's opening bar to their synth classic drama. Love it. Management to the tilt. Imagine if Vince Clark shows up. He is. He is Erasure's management. That would be that would be right. Uh, Carl says, at the best, keep it teletext, keep it blocky. Thanks for that auto signature. Hello and welcome to another episode of Teletext People. This particular episode is with Paul B. Davis, who was kind enough to have a chat with me about his philosophy on art and how he developed the Rotterdam Festival website which was left as a legacy site for the likes of me to come along and discover then get into teletext in our own way. He's a lecturer at Goldsmiths College in London, he's a demo scener and a chiptune composer as well as an artist and I had great pleasure in speaking to him and finding out about his philosophy on art and his other endeavours that he's got up to. Uh, you can visit paulbdavis.com and also if you do a search of his name on Google um, you will find plenty of other things that he's done like beige recordings uh, which is his chiptune label and some other projects that he's handled as well with Nintendo and Commodore without any further ado let's get straight into the interview how did you uh, what was your first experience of teletext what, what got you into that field in the first place um Teletext was not part of my um, experience growing up. Um, I mean, maybe it existed on some TV networks somewhere in some regions of North America, but um, not in my town. So the first time that I had, that I ever came across it was in Germany in 2001. Um, I had a kind of record label and art collective at the time called Beige, and we had been invited um, overseas for the first time to show work and do a performance or whatever. Um, and I was, I'd never been out of the States before. Um, so when I got to, it was in Munich, and when I got there, uh, yeah, I was just flipping through TV channels. I guess because I'd never been outside of the U.S., I had no idea what anything was like anywhere else, like Mediascape or otherwise. And you might, in that situation, you know, you flip through, well, I do anyway, I flip through local TV (laughs) in the same way you might, you know, watch people on the street from a sidewalk cafe just to sort of get your bearings in the landscape. And, um, yeah, I came across... Um, teletext pages, which I'd never seen before. Um, I would say it stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> uh, just thinking, what you know, what is this? Because um, aesthetically, they were similar to projects that I had been working on for some time. So, uh, you know, I'd been hacking Nintendo NES systems for a couple of years um, to do uh, sound and video installation. Um, my record label had released a vinyl record called the 8-Bit Construction Set, uh, which 
you know, one side was all done on an Atari 800, and the other side was all done on a Commodore 64, so I was kind of, I was interested in looking at what even in the early 2000s were obsolete technologies to try to unlock um, new meaning out of them. So when I saw something that I'd never seen before, sort of in the same aesthetic area, I was obviously very curious. And um, I was invited, I shouldn't say we were invited, to Germany by um, someone that I'd met online through sharing music and stuff with named Dragon. His name was Dragon Espenschied. And um, yeah, I was just like, Dragon, what what the fuck is this? (laughs) He was like, you've never seen teletext before. Um, And I said no. So he explained to me what it was and a little bit about how it worked and maybe a bit of its cultural importance. And I think he was also explaining that, you know, by the time that this was happening in 2001, it's... um, I don't know, its influence was waning, I suppose. High-speed internet was on the horizon, and AOL was doing very well, and sort of the first wave of non-specialists had flooded the internet, you know, for a few years at this point. So you didn't really need to check teletext for the latest scores (laughs) or news updates, Uh, but a lot of people still did. And there was also a lot of niche advertising um, you know, travel holidays, gambling, uh, phone sex. So I don't know. There was still a kind of um, target market, I guess, commercially. It was still providing news and updates, you know, quite up to the minute stuff. And it looked the way it did. So that's what Dragon explained to me. Um, and that moment in music in 2001 was my first experience with ever seeing it in general. You know, you, you said that you uh, came from uh, North America and you had no um, no experience of, like, broadcast teletext in the past. I know that I've um, spoken to other people who said that they did try to get it off the ground in uh, North America by, um, I think, uh, there was Keyfax and, um, and some other services as well. Uh, but I think they were very local to, um, like, Chicago and places like that. Was, that. was that not near an area where you came from? Um. Well, I'm from a city called St. Louis, so Chicago is... uh, Miles and miles away. A five-and-a-half-hour drive away, which is actually pretty close by American standards. (laughs) But we wouldn't be getting Chicago local television. No. Uh, So, yeah, you know, like, in terms of 8-bit or uh, low-resolution character representation... um, yeah, I grew up like pre-internet uh, doing BBS message boards. I was definitely involved in BBSs as an early teen. Um, I got my first, well, thanks to a BBS sysop friend when I was a teenager, they gave me a dial-up account at the local university. So um, I remember using the Lynx browser about 1994 to surf the web. So, I mean, <clears throat> and all those um experiences were i would say influential to my understanding of not just like display of information on a screen but creative potential so one of the things i really liked about um the bbs stuff was all the art 
the loading screens, the ANSI art and ASCII art crews, tracker crews, demo scene stuff. Um, so I suppose, <clears throat> yeah, that was my context, sort of, um, uh, yeah, like visual reference points, I suppose, when I saw a Teletext for the first time. And I was just surprised I'd never heard of it because, you know, I thought I kind of knew. <laughs> When you're young, you think you know whatever, you know, like, so I just, I was surprised to find an entirely new format that I'd never seen before that looked like, you know, in a similar vein. So, yeah. Oh, that's it. And, and you mentioned that you uh, dabbled with um, Atari and um, Nintendo and, and Commodore. Was that uh, was that mainly chiptune stuff um, uh, for, for, for the record label? Yeah, so it was a similar um, kind of, like, I didn't have an Atari uh, growing up or, or a C64. My computing experience was um, some colleague of my dad dropped off an IBM PC of some kind in the mid-80s for our house, at our house for a few weeks. And I plunked around on that, didn't really do much. Um, then they took it back because I guess, you know, I think there was just, my dad had, asked like oh could i borrow a computer to see what it does and we couldn't really get it to do anything particularly interesting so that was it then um there were apple twos uh and all of my elementary schools and you know we did like logo stuff programming little turtle graphics and playing all the regular games that you would play etc cetera, etc cetera. and it wasn't until um teenage years in the kind of yeah early to mid 90s that we got an actual computer so i missed like i played the 8-bit games because i had a nintendo nes and my friends had commodore 64s and stuff but i wasn't really i wasn't programming from like four years old or whatever like <clears throat> some of these demo coder people and i suppose that kind of informed how i approached teletext when i found out about it because when i decided to get into the 8-bit um, computing consoles as like a potential art medium, it was already tinged with, um, yeah, like they were already obsolete. So uh, this is a bit more about my history than Teletext, but I think it'll provide a bit of contextual relevance here. In, in 1998, in my when I was in university, I discovered eBay. And Atari for five bucks. So <laughs> I bought a load of them. <clears throat> Commodores were ever filled our dorm room with them and kind of went to town um, trying to make music. And I was exposed to sort of ASCII and ANSI demo stuff in the 90s. But then I'd, I'd seen like, you know, Future Crew, like the main kind of demo scene pieces. But I wasn't, I had no encyclopedic knowledge of everything that was happening in the scene. And um, so I decided, well, that's what I would like to learn about. And I wanted to find an answer to the question of, I wonder if I could do something new mm. with this machine that 15 years old. And that's where the, um, the record and the later Nintendo hacking projects came from. So when I saw Teletext, the same question was already there in the back of my mind. Like this is a similar sort of format of a similar age. I wonder if anything new can happen with this that hasn't happened before. So I started to learn about what it was, the history of it, 
how it was displayed. Yeah, the technical side behind it, and then just kind of filed it away as a cool thing that maybe an opportunity would come up where I could work with it. Mm-hmm. So how how did that get discovered then? Um, you you know, so you've put that away and started to um, investigate uh, the aesthetics um, and and sort of like the foibles of teletext. Um, how did that sort of like come into the attention of um, the the Dutch broadcasting company uh, for the Microtel project? Right. So that's the basically my one kind of teletext related project actually, um, and that was about. Five years later, um, me and my partner at the time, Emma Davidson, were asked to be in an exhibition. Um, The exhibition was part of the Rotterdam Film Festival. um, And uh, it was at the Witte de Witt Center, W-I-T-T-E-V-E-W-I-T-H. I think it might be called something different now but anyway the point of the um, yeah the point of the exhibition was sort of asking about alternatives to a sort of renewed potential of television that was the brief they sort of said you guys can do whatever you want make a new work for the exhibition but it's probably good if it has something to do with tv and you do something in a unique way um so we thought about it and just thought well why don't we do something with teletext and it was, a, a, like, I don't know, it was just as simple as that. Um, and we were trying to think about, well, what should we, should we just make some work with teletext? How would we do that at this point? What we started to learn is actually teletext wasn't a particularly open format. Um, as we researched the same simple question of how might we make something with it, we found technical documentation about formats and stuff, but if you actually wanted to make something, um, you kind of had to pay a lot of money to get a very niche software with a USB dongle, and that was in 2006, and the only people who could afford the software were TV stations, and that was on purpose, and um, so I suppose the, the artistic intention behind this potential work became not like, how could we make a specific thing, but well, how might we unlock teletext for anyone to make something? Because right now, anyone can't. Yeah, that's how we came up with sort of um, the idea of maybe we can make our own teletext TV station of some kind. That's how we then were introduced to the technical team at NOS. And that's how the project sort of, yeah, got the ball rolling. What ended up happening is we found text off some, like, archive site of a Polish television broadcaster or something like that i can't remember honestly where i found it but it was the only it's not open source but it was the only freely available Mm. (laughs) teltech software i could find because when we met with the nos people they kind of said yeah here's what we use but we'd have to sort out getting you a license and it's expensive and you have to take this hardware dongle back to london and blah blah so yeah we found cybertext i explored it for a bit i realized that the native zebratext file format was different um, from the file format that NOS used, so I wrote a small program to convert between the two, and and that became the project, is um, making an open call, putting a tutorial online, uh, putting zebratext online, and people made stuff, sent it to me, I converted it, and sent it to NOS to broadcast. 
that was broadcast um, actually live on their um, on their teletext system, wasn't it? On certain pages, um, and the, it was incredible because that legacy software that you had provided for people to share artwork to is in fact the art is is was the only open source teletext uh, program that i and some other teletext artists could uh, could find um, a few years later um so it was it was thanks to the software that you left on a, on that legacy site from the two which closed in 2006 uh, that we were able to um make teletext again and then um, a few people did come in afterwards and um you know re re reverse engineer and make some um teletext um online software available uh free to use which didn't require that stonking huge license fee because uh, that was the uh, the thing that prevented people from uh, playing with the art form so really uh, you know with, without without blowing smoke up your up your backside paul you 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 democratized um teletext for the masses well, I'm obviously glad to hear that because that was the intention behind the project. Um, and the format of the of the work as it was displayed was that NOS gave us um, five, is it six? I'll have to think, five or six <laughs> pages to use. Hmm. And then each page had a kind of theme. So I think there were two pages of uh, user submissions and each page would have had, I think, five individual teletext pages a day that was, you know, rotated through and then every day we changed them, so it was a different five. Um, there was one page that was just a static um, guide to the exhibition and the festival and what we were doing. Um, there was another page that was Emma, you know, like Emma and I make stuff, just we had our own little page. And then there was one more, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm sure the archive site will have it all. And it ran for, I'm going to say two weeks. We were in Rotterdam for a long time. And um, we also gave workshops in the gallery, uh, lots of them actually. So we would teach people how to use ZebraText. We gave uh, tutorials, you know, we had people making pages and then if Anyone after a workshop wanted to, they would just submit it and put it in the pool of um, public submissions to be broadcast by NOS and it would be up on TV all around the Netherlands, and suppose uh, Europe at that time, because I think they were already putting teletext pages on their website for anyone to see. Did you get many contributions from people? Was it very popular? Um, I mean, we got several hundred, I would mm. say. Um, I don't know if that means it was popular or not, but um, certainly we had way, way more material than we had time to broadcast the material. Hmm. So, uh, um, and we continued to get many, many submissions after the project was ended. It was only up sort of for the run, slightly extended over the run of the film festival, if I remember correctly, but it wasn't, hmm. you know, a sort of two sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and... We archived everything. I think there originally we had maybe intended to, to release everything we received as a DVD, but um, didn't get around to it. And I think I was like not happy about what DVD compression would do to a teletext image. So mm -hmm. maybe that was one of the reasons I didn't get around to it. Um, yeah, I would say that a number of the people who did contribute 
were either people that I kind of knew of or knew about either through music and chiptunes or through sort of net art stuff. Um, that was maybe about half of the contributors. And the other half were people that just found it, heard about it, came to a workshop. I don't know, general public sort of that were unknown um, to us previously. I would also, to add a slight tangent to that, when we, um, in doing the project and in um, meeting with the NOS technical team, we were, in my opinion, quite lucky to be able to speak with and work with what remained of the old guard, at least in NOS, of the engineers who were there when Teletext was rolled out. Um, and they had a lot to say about it, positive things, obviously. Um, and they also, there was one fellow named Ronald in particular, can't remember his surname at this point, but um, he really took time to tell us what Teletext meant to him as an engineer and how as, as part of his career, but also as just a, um, as a community, even at that time, which might sound kind of, well, quite obscure, I suppose, but he wanted to show me Chris, Teletext Christmas cards that the NOS crew had made for the BBC crew and the ones that they received back in the early 80s and he made all these printouts for me and it was a whole um, culture inside the institutions that were developing teletext and running teletext at the time uh, which was just like fascinating <laughs> and and I don't think anyone had ever inspected it or you know examined it the way that we were at the time and so he'd never had anyone to really outside of mm. engineering type, to, to talk to about it. He seemed really touched that uh, we were interested and we cared. And as a result, we got, um, I think, a lot of both technical help, but sort of contextual support for what we were doing. Mm. I still have the printouts oh, uh, that he gave me. So I'd, I'd love to, yeah. uh, I'd love to see pictures of them at some point. That'd be uh, quite, quite interesting to see. Because um, I've spoke, I've spoken to uh, uh, many other teletext providers um, as part of the podcast series, and there is this, um, there is this band of brothers approach and uh, mutual encouragement, regardless of uh, you know w w which service you work for. There was always this big uh, momentum to to keep the medium going. Yeah, I think that really lines up with what um, we saw. I don't know what you know if they thought that. Um, our project was necessarily going to keep teletext alive or not, but I, it was more that they were just happy that someone who wasn't an engineering nerd wanted to hear their story and see what they were up to and took an interest in the medium that they dedicated their entire careers to. You you mentioned a DVD, and uh, that was mentioned on the website that one may become available. Um, are you saying that the, um, that the, the DV, DVD was uh, never available? Um, I'm pretty sure. Well, I mean, I feel like I would remember it. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. It was. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I know that I have an archive of every submission still, um, and I have all the material. So mm. at the moment, I'm kind of um, in my studio practice. Uh, I've been returning to kind of things I was doing around that time, mostly in an archival sense. Um, but I think maybe this interview comes at a good time because it's a reminder to look at the Microtel project and archive it and make the entirety of it um, available, not just... Because the archive site that's up is sort of... 
the invite to come participate in a bit of documentation, but there's quite a bit more hmm. um, that was created. So yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, this is just off the top of my head. I may be completely wrong, but I think the Zebra text saved it as a format that it called TTV, and I think maybe what I wrote was a TTV to TTI converter. I've got all the code still, so mm-hmm. I could just run everything through and send that yeah. through as TTI. That actually yeah. sounds pretty trivial. Though. Yeah, I had some idea that there was. Um, a further, some further interest, um, you know, post Microtel. Hmm. Um, although not immediately. I think it was, say, maybe 2012 or 2013, I was invited to be a judge on something called the Internet Teletext Art Competition or hmm. something like this. Was that um, the ITIF? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then uh, that was super fun. And next year I submitted an entry myself. Um, so, and actually the reason that I found out about it and was asked to be a judge is because the, um, one of the organizers got in contact and said that they wanted to use, they essentially relied on the Microtel archive site to tell everyone how to do what they were doing. I suppose maybe the web editors that you're talking about hadn't been created yet, or maybe no one knew about whoever had created them at that time. I'm not sure, but they yeah. said they wanted to use zebra text off the um, the archive download link and to put it on their site, and that was, of course, fine. And they wanted to use my tutorials hmm. on their site to hmm. tell people how to contribute work to the competition. Of course, I said yes. Um, but I just thought, yeah, it was quite fascinating. that. But I remember the NOS tech people saying something like, you know, don't use blue on a black background. Or like There were a couple little things that they were like, so when the project finished then, is that the last, um, was that the last alliance you had with uh, Teletext for a while? You mentioned that you uh, did some judging for ITAF, uh, but um, uh, was that was that the, um, what, what projects did you go on to after Teletext? Um, yeah, so the only Teletext-related projects that I've ever done are the Microtel thing in 2006, and then I was, a, I guess, a judge at the first ITAF and... I contributed to the second one, if I remember correctly. The other, um, I mean, other projects. Yeah, well, I mean, my day job is a, uh, I'm a lecturer in fine art at uh, Goldsmiths College in London. Um, before that, um, I lectured in the um, uh, Innovation Design Engineering course at the Royal College of Art and taught at other art colleges, Ravensbourne College of Design and stuff, um, all, all in London. Mm. Um, I still make music and uh, DJ and occasionally release records. I finished a PhD just before the pandemic. Um, just a kind of mishmash of things like that. I just had a kid. Well, he's four now and another one's on the way. So been quite busy doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'd, be, that um, that'd be an understatement. Yes, for sure. So uh, Yeah, but I suppose uh, one of the threads that's always been through at least my artwork, probably my music too, I suppose, but the art stuff is um, finding a system that's maybe closed, underappreciated, or has, shall we say, aesthetic potential that I feel hasn't been filled for whatever cultural or historic reasons, and opening it. That's it. Sometimes I feel like maybe what I have to say as an artist in the medium is, I don't know, good or bad, who knows, it's almost more important to open it for other people than my own particular take on it, although I do have takes that I do, like I make work and not just sort of 
I make static works in addition to sort of participatory projects. But the, um, yeah, the thing that I really like to do is just to dig into something and open it up and I suppose make it available to both myself and anyone else on the planet who could possibly be interested in it. So that has extended to obviously, yeah, the 8-bit music stuff, uh, hacking Nintendo cartridges, do like glitching videos, like using... Um, hex editors and assembly language. I wrote a PhD on how to how we might evaluate digital art um, in the sense that what do we gain by understanding, like looking at the code of works instead of just the surface of works. Um, yeah, that's I think been one of the main threads. And the teletext thing obviously slotted right in hmm. into that sort of practice because the project did. Well, I mean, we just talked about the project, like it was a public project, <clears throat> trying to make available this, like becoming obsolescent technology in a way that it never was. So hmm. it's, it's sort of a hypocritical um, tale, really, isn't it? It's sort of like you've left the, you, 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 your project left the scrolls in the cave and then other people had, uh, you know, figuratively uncovered them a few years later. Uh, maybe that's what art is all about. Well, I think certainly it can be. It's you know, art is a pretty <laughs> wide and paradoxical field. <laughs> mm. um, but in my case, um, I don't like to feel that I'm saying something or doing something that someone else couldn't also do if they were interested in some way. That sounds kind of vague, but I suppose I mean that. <clears throat> Um, often if I have a solo show in a gallery, I will put a computer, uh, in the space, put all the software I made on the computer, uh, to create every work and a tutorial in there detailing how I did it. And if you want to do it too, here you go. Hmm. And <clears throat> here's a printer or a USB stick or, a, you know, I mean, hmm. you don't use CDs anymore, but at the time a CD burner to take away the thing that you made if you want, you know, that sort of thing. And actually, um, Lab. so my partnership with Emma Davidson, we were already doing all these kinds of um, <clears throat> digital art and art workshops around England before we did the Microtel project. So we'd gotten some funding from Channel 4 to do a whole series. Uh, we, we basically went on tour <clears throat> all around England and did, like circuit bending and kind of game hacking and basic electronics and soldering for kids and stuff. And so um, DJ workshops, music production workshops, um, especially music production workshops for women. Yeah, I don't know how to articulate it other than it seems a waste to just sort of do something as an artwork or anything, I guess, and try to pretend that like it's special and no one else can do that thing. And it's to me much more compelling to do something and then leave a path to everyone else if they think the thing you did is interesting. I mean, I don't think everyone likes to receive artwork necessarily. Some people like to have the magic in the theater and the mystery or whatever, but a lot of people don't, especially people who are creative themselves and might also want to be artists or take inspiration from what you're doing in their own creative way. So I can, I mean, this is, completely divergent <laughs> teletext but i remember a show that i did a music performance in chicago and i before i started i um 
started speaking to the audience, you know, got on the mic and I was like, this is the software that I've written to do this. And this turntable is connected to this thing. And this synthesizer is going through this effect. I've got my keyboard here and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I wasn't even halfway through explaining my setup before someone in the audience actually jumped on stage and said, be quiet. I don't want to know you're going to spoil the magic. I like, so I don't, really think about art the way that that person did but i suppose it was interesting to me obviously to take what she said on board and it reminded me that yeah not everyone likes to know or you know obviously whether you know how something was made or not you're still going to make up your own story for what it you are and how you relate to it but for me i think that at least i want to give everyone the opportunity and so i just do the work I put all the contextual stuff in the space and then I just let people explore it however they want. I just remember this, of course, because like the latest work that I've made. Um, I hadn't done anything in an art gallery for some years, like definitely before my, since before my PhD was finished. So it's like more than five years ago. But yeah, I just did a work that's on show here in London and it was uh, taking a fire effect from um, early PC demo scene. Um, and it was, I don't know if you've seen any of that demo scene, you know, they do little like rotating cubes and flying through a sphere and stuff that was really cool to see on the PC in 1994. Mm, and, but obviously, yeah, yeah, and still impressive now when you see it um, done on the old 8-bit systems and it's still being done today. Yeah, exactly. So this one was a fire effect that I really liked and it was actually quite influential because it was the first fire effect ever produced in the demo scene. It was from a demo in 1993. So I got in touch with the programmer who's still around. He's a game dev. Let him know, you know, what I was up to. Um, got his original source code. Uh, tinkered with it a little bit because there was some kind of, um, I don't know, like the bottom I thought was a little bit too sparky. So I just sort of, you know, massaged a few bits, but mostly left it intact. Uh, Rewrote it so it would run sort of bare metal, you know, no operating system. Put it on a single board computer, slap that on the back of a monitor, put that in a fireplace, <laughs> and then installed it in the gallery. And I printed out the original source code from the crew and left that on the mantelpiece for people to peruse if they wanted. So, um, yeah, I'm just mentioning that work as a way of sort of explaining both my own process for making work but also the way that i always leave basically how to's lying around for audience to use if they want to yeah you're leaving the instrument the musical instrument in the corner that you've made the you know made the comp composition on for someone else to pick up and have a go uh in in, in a way so uh yeah so where do we find the um you know links to your other works is there are, are there is there anything online where we can see your um eight bit work and your um and 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 your art installations um i am extremely bad <laughs> at uh like public documentation i'm much better at sort of um hoarding all my stuff and filing it away for to like do at some future date sure. but i just did for the first time in my life i bought paulbdavis.com there's nothing there yet but eventually hopefully in about a month there will be pretty significant documentation about most of my career um in the meantime uh if people simply google my name 
they will probably come across um, beigerecords.com, which is the record label slash art collective that I co-founded, and that has the music stuff on it. Um, they might come across postdata.org, P-O-S-T-E-A-T-A.org, and that is the website for the art collective side, so that has a lot of the early Nintendo works and prints and videos. Searching for my name will come up with the gallery website that has more recent work. Mm. Um, yeah, sort of, you know, mm. sadly, Google is your friend more than I can actually direct you to stuff, but if your listeners can be patient and uh, <laughs> yeah. allow me to actually put up my own website for the first time in my life. Um, oh. Hopefully they'll find a lot of work that might be compelling for them. Well, that, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank, thanks again, Paul. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure and um, to, to speak to the originator of, of uh, what's taken up a lot of my time in the last 10, 15 years and a lot of time of other people has been, uh, has been a real, real, real privilege. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, talk to you soon, hopefully. And again, a very big thank you to Paul B. Davis for contributing to this episode of uh, Teletext People. I hope you've had as much enjoyment listening to this as I had of uh, making this and the rest of the series as well. Just a little reminder that you can, if you feel inclined buy me a Kofi. Um, it would offset the costs of having the podcast it's not a colossal amount of money I'll be honest with you but over the passage of time um, anything that can offset the long term costs of keeping these uh, podcasts available for everybody uh, would be much appreciated um, I've considered doing a Patreon but I think that I'm giving everybody hopefully the top tier as it is, um, I wouldn't want to hold anything back because um, I'm really just sort of giving it my best shot at doing a podcast series anyway. So that's the uh, begging bowl out of the way, I guess. And um, there's nothing left to say except Teletext People is a bite high, no limit production. And until next time, keep it blocky.